action. Action. (laughs) Greetings, students. Welcome to the Need to Know More podcast for Theo 102. This week, the word we are considering is schism. Schism. That's a word that's not used as much as one would like to use it in life. It is. It is. It's. It's very. It's kind of a negative um, word, though. It's a. It's kind of a. It's a hard word. Schism. It's like it's a brutal. Yeah, word. Yeah, it sounds. I don't know. It sounds it's like sharp. it must be like German or something. Um. It. Yeah. The the literal meaning is just like a, a sharp split. A very sharp split, mm-hmm. like a break. division. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Between groups. So I think. Um. If, if someone is being very divisive, you would say that they are a schismatic. Oh, but here's the problem. We're talking about Christianity here, Dr. Payne. No <laughs> one's going to have a sharp, horrible split from each other. Why would anyone of do that? Of course not. Why would anyone do that? Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. The irony of the Christian life. And I think there's a theological reason for that in a lot of ways is that we are supposed to be unified in Christ. And yet we are also supposed to be holy. Mm-hmm. So like set apart from the world. And those two impulses are often in competition with one another in the the history of Christianity. And we are looking at one of the biggest like oh, divisions, schisms. I see, I see what you mean. I've never between. heard it. I don't know if I've ever heard like thought about it that way. Like holiness and togetherness. So like on the one hand, what's the problem? Like togetherness, we're all together, but holiness, you have to be set apart and different and pure. Yeah. But when you get into contact with other people, you start, you know, it kind of like, you know, like hypothetically brings out the worst in me, let's say. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think everybody probably knows if you've been around Christian churches of any variety, usually there's like a woman who I think of, it's usually a woman, a church lady. Mm -hmm. And there was like, students, this is for your parents. There was this character on Saturday Night Live years ago, played by Dana Carvey, a person who would dress up like a church lady, a very judgmental church lady. Oh, yeah. And, you know, tisk tisk about everything. And so... Um, even even when you're like together um, as a group, there's always a temptation to also kind of regulate each other, right? Because sure. the scriptures say, Jesus says in Matthew, be holy as I am holy. So we're supposed to do that. I see someone doing something wrong. I got to tell him. Yeah. And then also Jesus wants us to be one as he and the father are one. And we know how important that is because we've been talking about the formation of doctrines of the Trinity. So it's very important to be unified. Solution. You tell someone they're doing it wrong and they just listen. There you go. Now we're one. We're still one. The oneness has not been interrupted. <laughs> it has very few times worked out that way. Yeah, yeah. People people like I'm to joking be a little bit because you can see what the problem is, right? Like just right. politically with people. I mean, this is true for students. Like if you have roommates, this is true with your family. Like you oh, see yeah. all of the political and social problems of life also exist in the church. It's true. We we haven't been able to escape that, and I like to think that that's the way God intended it for intended for us to be, because we learn a lot through conflict and you know the efforts to be in relationship with one another. But you know, I mean, this is as old as as well forever, right? Mm-hmm. There's just always conflict when humans are together, true. and we are talking about like conflict on probably the grandest scale of the the history of Christianity when the the Christian church as a world movement experiences like a, a huge break mm-hmm. that is still not mended. Uh, 
I wonder if we could just get right into like what we're, you know, and we heard some of the stuff in the lecture, so I don't, I don't want to just yeah. repeat always. The idea is need to know more, but in some ways just talking about things in our own way maybe helps contextualize or lets the lecture material sink in. Like, sure. There were political and there were theological reasons for this split. Um, it's always confusing to me, I guess, as a Christian, as a person, I want to think of things like purely political or purely theological, but in this world and in our world today, but it's certainly in this world, those things, the politics and the theological were explicitly together. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as what we would call a secular world. Right. We're like, oh no, this is just like, this is a separate sphere of existence and religion is like its own thing. It's, it's, it has a, it has a word for it in its own category. That way of thinking like didn't even literally exist. Exactly. Yeah. That that's, I think a really important point to make because I think a lot of times when we, modern readers in the 21st century when we look back on that we can, sometimes people can feel discouraged when they see political maneuvering within the church and within people of god because they have what i think is a false idea that you could possibly separate the life of the church with like the life of just living a life in this world right. and politics is like the basic definition, right, is the struggle over power. And so um, what's more powerful than the divine life? I can't think of anything more powerful. So obviously people are going to agree yeah. and disagree and come into conflict with one another. And to me, the great schism is it's really like the, the culmination of many little schisms along the way. Mm. So we've been reading and, and going through history. Now we're, if you are noticing, um, we're about a thousand years in to the, the history of Christianity. And there's been many moments where people have disagreed and then they would make a, a huge scale effort to come together to resolve and to solve their disagreements. And those things are called councils. Mm -hmm. And then what we see in um, over the course of time is that differences in culture, in geography, and in... Um, theology and practice of, of the Christian life, uh, they get so great that um, we finally have um, the, this um, extraordinary moment when two factions of the church, two large factions of the church, mm -hmm. excommunicate one another. And just so the students remember what excommunication is, is they are no longer serving communion to one another, which what we talked about last week in the sacraments week that is so significant because basically they are damning one another because they are not offering salvation to each yeah, other. Yeah, like to cut someone off from communion in this way of thinking is to say... You're cut off from you're salvation. Done. It's over. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the key players here are sometimes thought of as East and West. Like what does what does that mean geographically or, or, or in, even in terms of language and politically? Like what is the East and what is the West? Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to me it's most helpful to think about if, if we think about um, the West and the East in, in terms of a couple different kind of bases, home bases. Mm -hmm. So what gets called the East and the Eastern Church is usually... Um, people are talking about something that's centered around churches um, around the city of Constantinople mm -hmm. and now known as Istanbul and Turkey. And then what's known uh, cities or churches that are, are affiliated with the West, mm -hmm. their kind of central location for decision-making power is 
um, the city of Rome mm-hmm. in Italy. If you mm-hmm. think about it, those two places aren't actually all that far apart I'm looking geographically. At a, yeah, I'm looking at a map right now, actually, that I just found on the World Wide Web. <laughs> the and World Wide Web. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of like a... it's You could look at it as a split between like Europe and Northern Africa versus like what is today Turkey, I guess, and Greece, and really a lot of, though not all of, what is modern day Russia. Exactly. Yeah. So it ends up extending, you know, as the church develops and grows, it ends up extending. And so most um, people who are, for example, here in in North America Mm -hmm. are affiliated with the Western church. And that's because um, this part of the world was colonized by Western by Europeans, yeah, yeah, by Western colonies like Portugal and Spain and England and France and stuff like that. Um, and then so, so we most people are, um, there's a very, there's a much smaller, uh, Orthodox community, although very lively and very much alive in, in the states. But historically, we were, um, people were most familiar with Western, the Western church and then the Eastern church. And I think it's important to note that these, it's not just geography, although that's a part of it. It's Mm -hmm. also cultural practices. So one of the weird things about this to me and, um, Dr. Edwards talked a little bit about this in her lecture as well, is that a lot of it had to do with kind of, um, ultra simple things like when should we worship? So, should we worship on a Saturday? Should we worship on a Sunday? Should we worship like when, when should our calendar go? Should it be based on the lunar calendar, the calendar of the moon or the solar calendar, the calendar of the sun? And those distinctions are still alive today. Like we, we celebrate, usually we celebrate with the Western church. So when you celebrate Easter, you're celebrating the sun calendar with the Western church. But if you celebrate, um, what you know? What we call Easter in the in the Western Church, in the Eastern Church, you are on a diff- a whole other calendar. So it's like your worlds right. apart. And the problem came when people were living in the same cities. Mm. And one of the f- interesting stories to me about this is that a lot of it had to do with like we're coming up on Lent here in our time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, and say you want to go through a period of fasting, mm-hmm. um, and you're in a city where there are people in the Western Church and the Eastern Church. And they live together, but they don't worship together. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a period of fasting, but your neighbor is like feasting because it's already Easter, yeah. maybe that would build some resentment in you. Could build some resentment. I think some of this stuff, I I think a, a person on the street reaction, you know, might be something like, look, I get it. Calendars, dates, the stuff you're mentioning, it's totally real. But mm-hmm. there's got to be, you know. A way around this. A way around this. Like, hey, let's just work it out. But I think like in a lot of things, like like say if you have a, a romantic partner or a spouse in this life, you might have an argument about something that's like where you put the cheese grater. And it's like, <laughs> why? How would, how would something like this get that heated? But it's be- because because behind it is something else, right? It's, it's about issues of who gets to say what happens. Yes. Which is what this was really about, right? Like one of the charges, for instance, I, that... Or that the East or, or what we would call Eastern Orthodox Christians had against Rome was that somehow Rome had elevated itself. Whereas maybe there was like, a, there were a series of cities that were um, seats of power in, in the Christian empire. Yes. That yes. Rome had suddenly been like, yeah, there are totally different places. Also we're number one. <laughs> totally. And they're like, wait, no, you're not. We're all kind of like number one, right? That was that what you mean? They're like, no, yeah. no, no. We mean we're number one, exactly us. And so and, and then Rome had an argument for why they thought that was legitimate. But so it was about issues of power. Like it's not yes. about what day you have the feast on, but it was about who gets to ultimately say. Right. I think from my my perspective, 
many arguments in um, the Christian church, and and we see this in the New Testament as well, is about who has the authority Mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. um, one thing or another. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if we think about like the Apostle Paul, he had to have that argument with with people who were skeptical about his conversion. Mm -hmm. And and in many ways, the Eastern and Western churches are involved in this extended argument mm-hmm. about who gets to say what and who is the rightful heir mm-hmm. to the, those authoritative teachings. And of course, in in the Western church, um, in Rome, they uh, claim the authority based on um, the centrality of Rome in the in in the story of the Christian Church, in part, right? So, in the story of, of Jesus handing authority over to Peter and Peter's lineage and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at this, do you have a sense as a church historian, as a Christian, that one side was really more? However, it works out now, back at this moment in church history, was 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 someone like they were both <laughs> to blame, but was like someone like you know more to, more to blame? Or was someone was someone right? And was someone wrong about this? Oh man, you know I'm I'm not a theologian and I'm not an ethicist, so I have a hard time like looking to the past and saying like in in a situation like this and really declaring a winner. From my perspective, as a Christian, I think it's very sad. So I think that I I don't I don't even think that I could declare mm. a winner mm-hmm. because what's at stake is so important, like the idea of Christian unity and that that. If you think about um, a practice like communion or Eucharist or whatever word you want to use for it, the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. as being a life-giving way of Christians loving one another, loving God, and experiencing salvation, mm-hmm. it almost seems like I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. wanting to even get to that point. So I guess from my perspective, it's just sad that it even happened. I, in the in the book Turning Points by yes. Mark Knoll, there's a there's a chart, this joint statement on Orthodox Catholic relations that top level people, you know, came up with. And there's even been stuff done, you know, s- since the time that this book was written. I'm sure in statements, but mm-hmm. you know, you've got both groups saying, you know, they regret the offensive words, both sides. Yeah. They regret and they remove both from memory and from the midst of the church, the sentences of excommunication. They're like, that never happened. That was wrong. Finally, they deplore the preceding and later vexing events, which under the influence of various factors, like just lack of understanding, led to the rupture of this. So they're saying... We're sorry. We're both sorry. In other words, they're they're not doing the blame thing. These two churches, ultimately, when they would come up with a statement like this, they're like, yeah. look, we're not going to do blame. We were both wrong. We shouldn't have said the things we sh- said. We shouldn't have said the things we, you know, we should, shouldn't have done it. But it's kind of like, I mean, you almost think of it like, in a, I mean, you might have to use a painful metaphor, like a divorce to think about this. And it's like, you can like say you're sorry, but the question is like, are we getting back together? Like, are these churches, they're <laughs> still, these churches are still not, fully back together. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay, so I'm so glad you brought that statement up because we are talking about, so that the uh, lifting the excommunication from one another happened mm-hmm. in 1965. Mm-hmm. So there are 911 years a lot of, of years. separation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the marriage metaphor, I'm glad you brought it up because to me, that's the perfect metaphor. Um, for one thing, that's a metaphor that the scriptures use to talk about the church and the relationship to God. So I think the idea like that they had a 911 year divorce is just tragic. And maybe you can't just overcome that in like five minutes, relatively speaking. On yeah. History. Historically, we're not that far, but um, I think also, you know, people it's, it's sort of like if you've, you know, had a, 
high school girlfriend or boyfriend and then you run into them 10 years later, Mm -hmm. students, this will happen to you sometime. And then, you know, for a lot of people, they have this experience where it's like, wow, what was I thinking? You know, like (laughs) you just changed a lot as a person. And so if you apply that logic on a big, like big data scale, you know, people have been, um, the, the churches were not static. They were growing and developing theological responses to their eras over those 900 years, a lot changed in 911 years. And so I think that that, um, it's, it's so wonderful in, from my perspective that the, um, excommunication has been lifted, but yes, they're, they are not back together. I would, for, for, for girls that I dated and we broke up, I think I would need about 911 years to admit (laughs) regretting the offensive words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and to uh, remove from memory the oh, mutual yeah. oh, misunderstandings. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, but that makes sense. And it, and it has been a long time. And I think that, you know, there there have been a lot of movements even like recently among various Christian groups to say like, hey, we should kind of like be one church again. And yes, even I think yes. in, some, in some parts, there have been even movements of people converting to Catholicism from other forms of Christianity mm-hmm. um, precisely because of that desire to like, even if it's not perfect to say, well, this, this is at least has a claim to be an original form of the church. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, other churches are more historically removed from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that there's always a tension and probably in the States and we'll get to why this, you know, reasons for this, we have a a particularly schismatic form of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, people just are always starting new versions of the church and there are some really neat things that happen from that, but then there's a sad side to it too, because that means that they're not in unity with one another. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, you know, it's something that the church has been wrestling with for literally thousands of years. So we're not going to solve it in one need to know more podcast, but I think that it's something to be thinking about the whole time, uh, you know, our whole lives about Mm. being in unity with, with other Christians and where's the line for that. So the Western church isn't done with schism. It, 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 it's only going to continue. Some things about to go down yeah, in the next yeah. couple dun, of weeks dun, of the class. Dun. Just FYI. Yeah, FYI. Yeah. That are like even more traumatic and dramatic than this in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing though that has kept up, you know, a consistent thing that's happened is that um, Christians have been, even while they were arguing with one another, terrible things were happening. Mm-hmm. There were also Christians who were creating really beautiful theology and art oh, yeah. and literature mm-hmm. reflecting the beauty of God and um, really just the the beauty of the Christian life. And we're going to read one of, I think, one of the luminaries of, mm. the, of um, the era that we've been covering. We're solidly in... Uh, the Middle Ages, the medieval period. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, scholars used to call it, or, or some people used to popularly call it the Dark Ages. We don't call it that anymore because... Sounds negative. Yeah, there's no reason. Like, the people who said yeah. that were were also people who called themselves the Enlightenment. Yes. So they tended to like think about the past as, as like well, terrible, and they were fixing a problem, but we're just thinking about it as the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, Middle Ages, and we have a character here named Julian of Norwich, or as the Brits might say, Norwich. 
Norwich. Yeah, that one never makes sense um, to me, but I'm not British, so I'll just go with it. It's like what? Do I eat a sa- sandwich? Sandwich. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, Whatever. Uh, yeah, maybe she maybe she called herself Julian of Norwich, but you know, yeah. for us, Norwich seems, uh, seems like the right pronunciation. I guess they might want to say like the Willamette River, but we all know it's the Willamette. So right. whatever. Um, yeah, Julian of Norwich, a a um, one of the first, um, like, well, there's been many women who've written beautiful uh, forms of theology. She's the first big, well-known English writer. Right. Um, and so you're reading, I mean, it was, it's not an English you and I would recognize, so it's been updated for our reading here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was in, in a lot of ways like Hildegard, the mm-hmm. person that we read, um, earlier in the course and she wrote these really striking mystical beautiful things i thought you know since we're writing or we're reading a lot about the we kind of get into the theological weeds with the great schism it Mm -hmm. might be nice to just reflect on the beauty of god let's take a step away into the beauty and the mysticism and the writing of julian of norwich What are we going to read exactly? We are reading um, selections of Julian of Norwich that have been compiled by a an organization that's actually founded by a George Fox alum, a guy named Richard Foster. Go Bruins! Yeah, <laughs> created um, an organization called Renovari, which is, um, among other things, they um, curate and and celebrate really spirit oriented writing. So Richard Foster is a great, um, Quaker, uh, uh, devotional writer. He wrote a famous book called celebration of discipline, which I was forced to read in college and loved it. <laughs> it's a great book. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you all, the Bible that students read for Theo one Oh one is a product of the Renovari crew. Mm-hmm. And so we are reading, um, selections from Julian of Norwich uh, that have been compiled by Renovari. Um, and our selection is called The Highest Form of Prayer. And we're going to read the last section, section number nine, um, called Immeasurable Love. Okay. Do you want to start or should I start? You start, you start. Okay, okay. Just as our flesh is covered by clothing and our blood is covered by our flesh, so are we, soul and body, covered and enclosed by the goodness of God. Yet the clothing and the flesh will pass away, but the goodness of God will always remain and will remain closer to us than our own flesh. God only desires that our soul cling to him with all of its strength, in particular that it clings to his goodness. For of all the things our minds can think about God, it is thinking upon his goodness that pleases him most and brings the most profit to our soul. For we are so preciously loved by God that we cannot even comprehend it. No created being can ever know how much and how sweetly and tenderly God loves them. It is only with the help of his grace that we are able to persevere in spiritual contemplation with endless wonder at his high, surpassing, immeasurable love, which our Lord in his goodness has for us. Therefore, we may ask from our lover to have all of him that we desire. For it is our nature to long for him, and it is his nature to long for us. In this life, we can never stop loving him. I learned a great lesson of love in this blessed vision. For of all things, contemplating and loving the Creator made my soul seem less in its own sight and filled it full with reverent fear and true meekness with much love for my fellow Christians. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty. That's beautiful. You know, the first section I found kind of like 
a little bit um, gross. The, the 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 blood in the clothes <laughs> metaphor. The flesh. The flesh. I was thinking about skin. Oh, like, I've seen too many horror movies. Yes, you have. I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't watch horror movies for this very reason. The goodness of God will always remain and will remain closer to us than our own flesh. So she's trying to use the body to say, like, oh, that's how yeah. close God is. That is very striking to me. It's almost like too close. Like it's uncomfortably close. But she's saying it's great. Yeah, I thought about that. I, I mean, from my perspective, like there's a part of God mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, I think... Most people, it's uh, most Christians at some point in their Christian journey are like a little uncomfortable with the fact that God knows everything about them, right? And also, like, knows you know what will be about them. And so, mm-hmm. thinking about God is that close yeah. is beautiful and also uh, to me a little uncomfortable. Well, it, it calls me to even think about my own life, like the just the amount. And I think I'm pretty, I'm a pretty, per- you know, I'm kind of like a blunt person, I'm known as an honest person. Um, but I just realized too, like how much of my life is a facade for mm. other people and the ways, and then thinking like, there's no one on earth, like not even the people who know me the best, like not even my wife right? who knows like the full me behind the facade. I mean, even in ways of course, it's even true that I don't even really understand right. the real me, but like to think that there's, that God understands the actual real me. It's like, there's only one entity That's that, he, freaky. that even knows. Yeah. I think that that, that part I found to be a little unsettling in, in a good way and mm. also in kind of just an unsettling way, I guess. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I thought it was really interesting that this section ended with an um, an outward love. Mm-hmm. Like she's having this reverie about God mm-hmm. and loving God mm-hmm. and thinking about God mm-hmm. and the closeness and goodness. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, it makes this outward turn, which I thought was kind of interesting, filled with reverent fear and true meekness. And with lo- much love for my fellow Christians. Yes, yeah, so it goes from love of God to love of others, which is the double commandment that Jesus gives. You mm-hmm. shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. So there she echoes that. I think about her. She was saying this uh, centuries, a few centuries after the Great Schism. But I think about um, that challenge and how, how sad it is mm. not to meet that challenge with a love for your fellow Christians. I mean, maybe there's an answer here that already presents itself, but I just want to ask you like for, you know, I don't know, a closing thought of devotion for us, for our students, for everybody, for me, like, let's say I read this and this is actually partly true of me. So not totally hypothetical. <laughs> and I even see all this language of like, love, love, love God. And it's like, it's not like I don't have emotions or I don't feel things like, Oh boys, they don't have emotions. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not the case. But I, f- I find the language of the love of God, like really abstract. Uh-huh. Like, what do I do? Do I like have to sit in a room and like try to like feel something that I don't feel or see something that I don't see? Like, what would you say to someone if they're like, okay, I want to love God, but it's like, how do I do it? Like, how do you feel that that love is real when it's like, I can't see God. I can't, I don't, you know, like, where is it? You know, like how, oh, how, wow. could, how could one make that concrete? Well, I'll make a, I'll respond to that. And I'd like to hear you respond too. But my first response is that I think it's here in the, like the fleshly language, like mm-hmm. where do we experience Jesus in the flesh? Mm-hmm. And the only, because we live in the time that we live in, the only way that we do that is through other Christians. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's that weird, um, that weird thing about God is that we experience God in part through loving each other. And that's also the hard part. Because it's hard to love other people. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think of that. There's a um, there's a statement, and I think it's in Mark and Matthew in the New Testament about Jesus says, "If you give 
a cup of water, you know, to somebody or do something to the least of these, someone who's struggling, someone mm-hmm. who's poor, like you've done that to me. So I think scripture makes a direct line like Julian does here at the very end mm-hmm. between that thing. I guess the problem is for Christians, like, especially in our secular world is like making sure that that line between love of other people and love of God doesn't get cut because we know that in fact, um, there are people who aren't Christians at all or who are atheists who like love other people and do great things. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't think there can be like a, a rational denial that you like you can't love other people. But oh, sure. For Christians, though, there has to be like this like memory and this and this affirmation and and even through Christian ritual and through practice. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, to say like doing this thing for other people is something that Jesus actually told us to do, and that is actually doing it with and for God. So that that kind of love can be connected. I think that kind of love also is a is for me, it feels convicting because we have to say like, if we are being cruel or not loving, then we have to ask ourselves, are, is our love for God real? Right. 